Thanks be to God, indeed, this is a wonderful passage, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we will walk through it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I pray that we would understand that this passage would be illuminated for us and that we might be conformed to Christ, who is our great liberator. In him we have freedom. Help us to know that and to see it and to live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I recently saw a short video in which two uh, male big buck deers were uh, locked against and into one another with their antlers. Their antlers were completely locked together. They had been fighting. Apparently this is a thing among deer. And they could not separate. And they were thrashing around. And a group of people came upon them, perhaps folks who owned the property. They filmed the whole thing. But these two uh, deer were beginning to to thrash more and more, and they were exhausted. And they ended up moving toward a creek, and it was actually hard to watch if you're an animal lover. Um, they were beginning to you know, get submerged in the water, they'd fight, and then they would just look exhausted. And the folks who were filming it said, we realized that if we didn't do something, uh, these deer would die soon of sheer exhaustion. So. One man got his uh, branch trimmer, his power branch trimmer, which is a power saw on the end of a long pole and at great risk to himself because, again, these are giant deer with big antlers and they're thrashing about. He got up really close to them and he got his saw going and he put his saw right between their heads and cut off just enough, a few inches, of one of the antlers, and it sprung them free. And the woman who was recording it said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now, if you're a cynic, you're going to ask, well, did he let them go away and then go hunt those deer a few minutes, <laughs> a few minutes later? But one of the things that really struck me about this video is that both of these deer bolted away as fast as they could from the one who liberated them. You see, those rescued creatures wanted nothing to do with the person who actually gave them life or kept them from dying, who freed them. And likewise, as we think about the human experience and what the Bible says, Christ at great danger and cost to himself, he has liberated us. He was cut off from the land of the living so that we might be cut away, as it were, from sin and death. Now, our tendency might be actually to act like the deer and to think like the deer. I'm set free to run off and go away and do my own thing. But Romans 6 says, being linked to Jesus by faith through baptism, that is our union with him, we are not under law, but we are under grace. We're going to hear a little bit more about that next week. But that can lead to a misconception, Paul says. And that misconception is what he's dealing with here. Well then, should we sin because we are 
under grace and not law? Paul says, absolutely not. May it never be so. In other words, back to the imagery, we're free not to run away from our emancipator. We are free to run toward him. Again and again and again, that's where we find life. That's how we live out our new life. Don't be like the deer. And so we have three topics today that we're going to walk through as we look at this passage. The first is the fallenness of slavery. The second is the freedom of slavery. And the third is the fruit of slavery. And so first, the fallenness of slavery. More than actually the theme of freedom in the passage, Paul uses slavery imagery quite shockingly, both negatively and positively. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to life? So Paul is basically saying there's awful slavery and there's blessed, beautiful slavery, but there's no um, not slavery, you could say. Now Paul points out in verse 19 here, and it's a tricky theme, he points out that he is using a human analogy and we bring baggage to this analogy. We certainly do in our American experience because when we think of slavery, we think primarily of the awful blight on our American history of Africans being enslaved in America and by Americans. But Paul says he uses this human analogy to help us grasp the gravity of what he is saying. And so negatively considered, apart from grace, we, friends, are slaves to sin. And we have to remind ourselves that that's not just super messed up people. That is not simply those who are in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. It is not simply criminals. But it also includes all of us, <laughs> upstanding people, friendly people. In fact, Paul says in Romans that sometimes the outwardly virtuous are the most in spiritual bondage. Why? Because they're proud of their self-rightness. And their religion makes them think they do not need a savior because they can do what God wants them to do and that's what saves them. And so what Paul is saying here is he talks about horrible slavery and blessed slavery. He is saying you are not neutral. You can't say, you know, I'm a spiritual Switzerland. <laughs> I'm out. I'm on neither side. Nope. You are not neutral. You are always inclined toward God in life or sin in death. In junior high school, which we now call middle school, uh, I bought a Bob Dylan album called Slow Train Coming. And it was kind of, you know, popular at the time. And there's a song that, that had a refrain, and many of you know it. Um, we've mentioned it before in our church, but it really stuck with me. He said, over and over, Bob Dylan did, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve someone. 
And so that theological point helped me when I was in junior high to, to realize the truth of what Paul is talking about here in Romans. Additionally, as we think of our own American experience living here in this culture, there's a tendency to blame, I think, our problems on external factors, right? It is, <clears throat> it is the society in which we live. It's our environment. It's our parents, right? It's our parents that messed us up. It's our DNA. It's the food we eat. Gluten made me do it, right? Now, folks, all these things can have influences, and sin impacts everything. And so I don't want to uh, belittle that those factors play a role. But the point is, we can change our environment, we can change these, these external factors, and we still are dealing with the problem of the human heart. It bears uh, repeating, revisiting a cartoon that I mentioned recently. It, it's wonderful. It's from the New Yorker. Some of you haven't heard this. And there's a couple and they're on the beach. They're in paradise. They're sitting on their beach chairs. They're looking out at the ocean. And the guy's sitting there and he turns to his wife or his girlfriend and he says, oh no, we're still us. <laughs> right? We can go to a, you know, we can move, we can get into a different relationship, get a new job, and eventually we begin to realize, oh no, we're still us. That's what Paul is saying here. And so in verse 19 he says, as we give ourselves over to lawlessness, this leads to increased lawlessness. This is how uh, the philosopher, the Christian philosopher, taught at Boston University for years, Peter Kraft, this is how he puts it, and I think it really illuminates what Paul is saying here in Romans 6. Powerful. Kraft says, when we make anything but God our object of desire, it possesses us. The dark path began in Eden. The horrible effect became immediate, immediate once we laid our hands on the fruit we desired, all the way back at the beginning. It laid its hands on us. And now notice what happens. The self was, quote, unselfed. Not filled, but emptied. Not enhanced, but devastated. The object we worshipped grew into a god, and we shrank into slaves. And friends, that object can be a substance. It can be a game. It can be a relationship. It can be a pattern of thought. It can be sexual immorality, it can be all sorts of things. I think more commonly for many of us, it can be simply the clutches or the trap or the interlocking of self-preoccupation. In other words, we cocoon when we're hurting. And there's a place for that, but we begin to bleed over into being so stuck in our heads, in our own thoughts, that we're not thinking about the needs of others. And then that becomes a kind of self-preoccupation and self-pity that moves us away from loving others. And so ultimately our problem is not simply how we are with each other or in our own heads, but our problem, as that quote pointed out, our problem is false worship. It is laying our hands on the fruit of our desire. 
It is going after false gods. It is treating the creation as though it is our creator. And so Pastor Tim Chaddock has said, we resemble what we revere either for ruin, in other words, slavery, an awful slavery, or for restoration. And we'll look at that positive slavery in a moment. And so does the abundance of God's grace enable sin? To answer Paul's question, the answer is no. We are freed from sin, and that does not mean we are freed to sin. So I want to look now at this notion of the freedom of slavery. We've seen its fallenness, but now we see its freedom more positively. You see, this passage is primarily very encouraging. It is very positive. Look at verse 17. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Now, it's easy to miss this, but in Romans 1, Paul says, in, in humanity's ingratitude and idolatry, God handed them over, meaning all of humanity, to themselves, to ourselves. And now here, he's using similar imagery to say, you have been handed over to this teaching. In other words, the gospel the truth about Jesus, God has given you over, not to yourselves, but to this, to Christ. And because we've been freed from the dominion of sin, and as Paul said in Romans 5, brought under the reign of grace, then we shouldn't serve sin as though it's still our master, because it's not. Let me take you back to the dear video. I've never talked about deer so much in a sermon before. We had to help them, is what one man said as they were about to go try to help these deer. He said, we had to help them because they couldn't help themselves. And friends, that's a perfect statement for what we're looking at today. We could not help ourselves. We couldn't free ourselves from the reign and, sin, uh, and domain of death but Christ has intervened to help us, to emancipate us. And he freed us from the trap of our sin so that we would move toward him as our liberator. And this means that we have to remind ourselves that we are not free to do our own thing, but free to offer our hearts, our thoughts, our bodies, our sexuality, our money, our church, all of these things to God. And a new position that we have in Christ, a new relationship, thus means a new pattern of living. And your legal status in Christ means that you have a living experience of Christ. And so Paul is drilling into our heads and hearts. You have gone through, if you're a believer, you have gone through a regime change. Remember, you belong to one regime or another. And if you trust Christ, despite whatever doubts you have today, and you may, and that's okay because it's about the one you trust. Even if your faith is weak, he is strong. And so if you trust him, you live under the regime of grace. And Paul is saying, look, grace does not stimulate or enable sin. That's a perversion of the gift. 
No, grace liberates you from sin and enables you to triumph over it. And yet, the problem is, as Tim Keller has written about this passage, you can still be a, a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. It's been said that we can fall into a kind of mental slavery, and this was the experience of many African Americans who were freed. They, this, this came up, Martin Luther King talked about this. He said, do not fall back into the slavery mentality. You have a new legal status, but now you have to live in light of that freedom. freedom. And so either we are given to the sin that leads to death or the obedience that leads to righteousness and life. And so Tim Keller continues, whatever you may feel in your heart, whatever you experience, uh, your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if, if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam, that is fallen humanity. That's not what defines us, in other words. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. He continues, and if I fall into sin, which we all do, if I simply uh, say and realize this is not who I am, what I say is I realize my life in Christ. I reckon myself to be alive in Christ. I count myself dead to sin and alive to God. This is the word that we speak about ourselves because God has spoken it over us. And so, dear friends, this passage guards us against defeatism as we see that sin, sin is inconsistent with our freedom. It is, in a sense, insane to go back to it. We do, and we're going to talk about that more next week. But it is inconsistent and unreasonable and sad to go back to the trap from which we have been sprung. You see, once we were in bondage to the power of sin, but now we are bound and bonded to God's love and grace in Jesus. We have been set free from something, but even more set free for God and living for Him. And so this call to blessed slavery is a call to total obligation and full accountability as we obey the pattern of teaching about who Christ is and what it means to follow Him, what it means to be His people. And someone has said, when Christians give in to sin, they cannot remain there permanently. In fact, the distaste and disease of sin drives them out again as they realize, why have I come back to this dark place? I want to flee to the light and the love and the beauty of Christ where there is freedom. Now, I want to bring this home to you by talking about what it has meant for me this week. I, I vaguely mentioned this kind of thing over the years, uh, but it happened actually down in the office <laughs> here in the church when I was kind of wrapping up working on this uh, one day. And we have a, an extended family album with all the different in-laws on, on shared albums uh, for 
that includes our, our five grandkids, and those five grandkids all live in Idaho, some of you know. And one set of grandparents has moved there. And, and I noticed, <laughs> uh, I was just kind of thumbing through the pictures, wow, there are a lot of photos with my grandkids with the other grandparents. You know, there are not many of me with them. And then I started to think, and I saw some pictures, like one of the grandkids was playing a game with my uh, in-law. He's, he's a great guy, a Christian guy, but, but, but they were just having a great time, and I thought, you know, maybe she prefers him. Uh, she spends more time with him. Uh, and I went to, you know, in my heart, I was starting to feel the pangs of jealousy and envy. And, and friends, it, it was kind of this thing that you just start to, to nurse in the shadows, right? And then I thought of this passage. And it was pretty quick, <laughs> which is a good thing. And I basically said to myself, I'm not given over to jealousy. Envy does not define me or trap me. But I have been, to use Paul's language here, I have been given over and turned over to gratitude for what God has given to me. I have been delivered over to being happy for what God has done to and for others. We get to share in this orbit of love, there's no reason to feel bad about this. That took about five minutes. <laughs> and I think that is a way that we can apply in our thoughts, in our patterns, in our relating, we can apply this beautiful logic that Paul is giving to us. An early church father, Chrysostom, said, he asked, service to God? Yes, service to God is better than my freedom. And I want to add, service to God is your freedom. That is your freedom. You see, conversion to Jesus Christ, a new life in Him, being re reborn in Him, entails self-surrender to Him. Now, we never do that perfectly, and... We're going to hear again next week why we always need the gospel of grace that saves us. But Paul is talking here about surrendering to the one who loves you and liberates you. And so we come to the fruit of service. Paul says, so now offer your members over to God and you do this and this leads to sanctification. What is sanctification? It means that by God's free grace we become more and more able to die to sin and to live for righteousness. And so friends, where does the fruit of righteousness need to flow more from your relationship with Christ? Is it your tongue? Your words? You know, sometimes we're tempted to say too many sarcastic and cynical things, and it begins to evidence a kind of hopelessness and bitterness about the very fallen world we're living in. And God wants us to use our tongues to express um, trust in Him and joy in Him in a world that is very dark and cynical. Or it may be that at times we don't say anything at all and we miss opportunities to encourage others. So it's just the, the sin of passivity in terms of our words and the way we don't use them. 
John Stott helps us with asking some diagnostic questions about ourselves. He says, we must learn to ask ourselves, don't you know, <clears throat> you're speaking to yourself here, don't you know the meaning of your conversion and baptism? Don't you know you've been united to Christ in his death and resurrection? Don't you know who you are? Yes, I am a new and liberated person in Christ, and I will live accordingly. I had to go through that when I was downstairs and starting to feel jealous. You see, in our union with Jesus, that self that we heard about from Peter Crave that, that shrivels and gets devastated as we give ourselves over more and more to sin, in Christ, our self is established properly because we have our new true selves in Christ. And it means that we are not possessed by a false god or idol, but we are God's dear and beloved possession. And so I'll take you back to a quote earlier. We resemble what we worship for ruin or restoration. <clears throat> Paul is saying, resemble more and more your loving, holy God as you revere Him, as your affections for Him are stirred, as you gaze upon not a false fruit or a false object of worship, but the only one who deserves your worship, and then our hearts are changed to become more and more like his heart. The women's Bible study, uh, those of you who went this week, you heard a quote that says, we worship our way into sin, meaning we, our false worship gets us trapped in sin. That's what Paul is talking about here. And we worship our way out of sin. That is true worship. Letting our hearts be captivated by the beauty of Jesus and freedom in Him, that's what brings us out of our patterns of sin. And yet, friends, lest we think this is something that we earn or that we merit, Paul resoundingly reminds us in verse 23, it brings it all home. It's the basis for all that he has already said. For, or because, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what we merit is death and even hell. But what Jesus merits for us, and it's a gift to us, He merits life, salvation, and heaven. And so our entire acceptance, my entire acceptance, your entire acceptance before God is based solely on the fact that Jesus Christ has represented you fully in his sinless life and obedient death before the Father. You have no other hope than that. Remember the wage of sin. And even your good deeds are tainted by your sin. The wage of sin is death. But his free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, many of you are here on Christmas Eve. Some weren't. Uh, and I want to continue uh, an illustration as I conclude here. I spoke on Christmas Eve about the fact that, and many of you know this, that it, it very much looks like this summer. I, I still hold out hope that maybe we don't have to do it. But this summer, Liz is scheduled uh, to give me uh, a good, <laughs> hardworking, 
healthy kidney. And I mentioned on Christmas Eve that this has really brought home to me that self-sufficiency in the physical realm is, is a trap, certainly. I, I will need either a machine or a donated kidney at some point to stay alive. And conversely, or along those lines, friends, you need Christ's gift of new life and liberty, his death and resurrection, or you die. You cannot be self-sufficient. But this is where I want to take it further as it applies to what we're hearing today. Some have said, as I have shared and we have talked about this um, uh, passing off of the gift and this reception of the gift I'll, I'll uh, experience this summer probably. Some have said, quite understandably, once you get a new kidney, you can eat however you please because <laughs> I have all these restrictions now. And what I think about when I hear that is, oh no, that's not the right mentality. You see, when I receive this gift of life, I want to steward it. I know a man who actually received a, a kidney from his wife, and then very quickly he went back to his hard living that got him to that point. And I, I heard later he destroyed it. I don't know even if he's still alive. And so what I want to say, based on this passage, is, then, is that when we receive this gift, this gift of salvation, we want to steward our freedom. We do not want to abuse grace. And so we take the righteousness that God has given to us and we live consistently with this gift. Our living flows from our freedom in Christ. And so friends, where do you need to bear more fruit that's in keeping with your liberty in Christ. He has freed you not to run away, but to run toward Him or to run back to Him. Let's pray.